We thank you for your word, Lord. And we recognize that the psalmist wrote that you magnify even your word above all your name. So we honor you and thank you tonight for seeing fit to place your word into our hands. And we pray that your word would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Spirit, that you would be um, explaining, expressing, whispering to us, even as we study here tonight. And we pray that you'd guide us through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Hebrew Scriptures are also called in the Jewish Bible the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is divided up differently than our, uh, than our Christian Bibles have it divided up. Uh, it's divided into three primary sections. And just for your, uh, for your understanding as we study these things, those sections include the Torah, which we just finished, the first five books. Then following the Torah, the second section is the Nevi'im, or the Prophets. And that's the section that we're heading into right now. It's the book of Joshua all the way through the end of the prophets. And uh, that section, is I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a minute, is divided up into two parts itself as well. So there's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and then finally the Ketubim, which is the writings. The writings, which can include the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the, the, uh, the poetry books of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the Tanakh. Well, the Nevi'im, or prophets is divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former section includes where we're headed right now, Joshua through Kings. And it's also been called not only the prophets, but the history of Israel. For now Israel is going to enter the land. And once they enter that land, they are going into, we will watch the history of a people possessing the land and then growing in their, um, in their government, in their understanding of the Lord. And we will see them grow to great heights. We will also see them fall to dramatic depths in this next section. We're going to journey with them into the next phase of their history. From the conquest of the promised land to capture from the promised land the Nevi'im, the prophets. The latter prophets would be Isaiah through Malachi, which speaks so much of the coming of Messiah. And yet, as you know, we've already studied through and seen how much speaks of the coming Messiah, spoke of Jesus in the early writings of Moses that we have before us. Now before we get into this book of Joshua, the beginning of the next section of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament Scriptures, I want to look at Joshua the man. Consider Joshua the man and understand a little bit more about him as we enter into the book that he authored, obviously by the Holy Spirit. Now in all likelihood, Joshua was born in Goshen, in the land of Egypt, he had to be because he would have come out with the people as a slave. He would have been a young man um, when, when he left Egypt. And then coming into or nearing the promised land now, Joshua will be 80 years old as he begins the conquest, which is pretty cool. 40 when they first started their wilderness wanderings way back when. And now 40 years old later, this 80-year-old man is going to lead the charge of the conquest of the land of Canaan. Now, if you want any information regarding his parents, there's none. Literally, his dad's name was none. 
We know as Joshua, son of Nun, and that's all we know about his father. We do know a little bit about his grandfather, Elishama. Elishama was a leader of the tribe of Ephraim during the wilderness journey. Elishama, his grandfather. Numbers chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 27 tell us that Elishama is Joshua's grandfather, which also tells us that Joshua comes from the tribe of Ephraim. Now Ephraim and Manasseh were those two tribes that were broken out of the tribe of Joseph. And they were very treasured tribes according to the Lord. And if you look back in, in Deuteronomy as Moses is blessing the tribes, when he gets to the tribe of Joseph, which is Ephraim and Manasseh, the blessings are just poured out. God loves Joseph. God has a special place in his heart for Joseph. And as we saw on Sunday morning, I mentioned this briefly, the people, the, the generations following Joseph, are incredibly blessed because of the faith of Joseph. And as I said Sunday, those of you parents, your children, your future generations, will be blessed by the faith that you live out right now. That faith is so critical, not just for our own lives. A lot of times we get centered in and selfishly, and it's a natural human tendency, we think about our faith and growing in our understanding of the Lord and not recognizing the impact that that has on those around us, be it our children or our friends or family. But it has a dramatic impact. And so Ephraim was a very blessed tribe because their forefather Joseph had such a great faith. And was so loved by the Lord. Well, Joshua comes out of that tribe of Ephraim. Now, the first mention of Joshua in the Bible is in the book of Exodus, where we learn several important things about Joshua. And if you're a note taker, you might want to jot a few of these down. The first is simply that Joshua was a man of courage by the Lord. He was a man of courage. Before he ever launched out as commanding the troops going into Canaan, he proved himself as a man of great courage. I'll just read this to you. It's Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9. Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. And tomorrow I'll station myself on top of the, on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did just as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. And thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Joshua distinguished himself early on with military prowess, with military might. He had courage by the Lord. And furthermore, as you'll see in this first chapter of the book of Joshua, four different times the phrase, be strong and courageous, is connected to Joshua. In fact, when you hear that phrase, if you've done any Bible study, you probably immediately think of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Oh yeah, that's, that's the phrase for Joshua. And it's interesting that it's spoken to Joshua, a man who is already, by history, a courageous man in the Lord. And by the way, this passage... Uh, back in Exodus chapter 17. If you didn't know this, just a little interesting side note, is the first section of Scripture ever written. It's the first section, not Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Moses wrote all of it. But the first section written before, in Exodus 17, before Exodus 20, where the law was given and Moses sat down and began to write out the five books, the, the Torah, before that happened. In Exodus 17, we have in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, The Lord told Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. 
The word recite is interesting. It means repeat it over and over. Remind Joshua of what happened on the battlefield against Amalek. Why would God do that? He said to Moses, write it down as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua. Write it and recite it. And so, that's exactly what happened. That's what Moses did. He wrote it down as a book. And after writing it, he would sit down with Joshua. We can only assume time after time and recite this to him again and again. God was looking ahead. This word recite again, it's to speak over and over or literally rehearse. Rehearse this with Joshua. You fought Amalek on the battlefield. There will be more battles ahead. And so he was to rehearse with Joshua what happened on the battlefield. God was already interested in the training of this young man, even though it would be 40 years before it would come into play in a serious way for Joshua. Rehearsal was important for the Lord. Well, Joshua was a man of courage uh, by the Lord. He was also, secondly, a man of conviction before the Lord. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Talking about the Lord speaking to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And I love this verse. It's one that's easy to skip on by. But it says, When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What tent? Speaking of the tent of meeting, where God said, I'm going to come down and I will meet with you. I will meet with the people there at the tent of meeting. And so when Moses went to speak to the Lord, he went out to the tent of meeting. And that's where he met the Lord. Well, when Moses was done talking to the Lord, he'd come back from the tent of meeting to his own tent or somewhere else in the camp. But Joshua never left. Joshua stayed there at the tent of meeting. Joshua knew where he needed to be. He had a conviction, even as a young man, in the Lord. He wanted to be right up front, right where the action was. Where God shows up, that's where I want to be. And so this is the tent of meeting. This is the place that God's going to show up. I'm just going to stay here because I don't want to miss a thing. That attitude of Joshua, I love that. It's no surprise, by the way, that when Joshua spied out the promised land with Caleb and the other ten guys who were cowards, that we see number three, Joshua was a man of certainty in the Lord. Prior to ever going and spying out the land, he had spent much time. He had already fought a battle and won by the hand of the Lord. He knew that. He was courageous in the Lord. He had already stayed at the tent of meeting, convicted in wanting to be near the Lord and be filled with the things of the Lord. So that when the spying came, when Joshua and Caleb and the other guys went into the land, Joshua was already certain that the Lord could do whatever the Lord wanted to do. And though they all came back, and those ten guys, their hearts failed, and at Kadesh Barnea, that was Israel's big mistake. It was their big failure that landed them a 40-year uh, trip through, the, through the, the wilderness before the Promised Land. At that time, Joshua was absolutely certain God could do what God said he would do. Numbers chapter 14, verse 8. Joshua speaking, said, If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land. He'll give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now I'll tell you something. Joshua had something that he easily could have been afraid of in those moments when he was speaking those words. And it wasn't the people of the land. It was his own people. Because his own people in mass were against this idea. The other ten spies were saying, No, we can't do it. And the people's hearts were wavering. And the talk throughout all the camp, throughout all of, of Israel, was, We can't do this. And yet Joshua stood up in the face of all that pressure... And said, what are you talking about? Of course we can do this. 
Joshua had a certainty in the Lord. And Joshua understood what Paul would later declare. Something that I continue to need to learn. I pray that you will learn it as well. Galatians 1.10, Paul said, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And let me let you in on a little something that I've learned in ministry over the years. I've learned in ministry that you can't please people. No matter how hard you try. And I've watched friends of mine who went into ministry eventually resign and get out of ministry for this reason. They tried to please and keep everybody happy and it just fried them. And the thing that I've learned in these days, especially since starting the bridge, is that I've got to please the Lord. And that might, always, might not always please you. I hope it does, because hopefully we're all listening to the same God and we're all moving by the same Spirit. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to decisions made at the bridge, when it comes to shepherding and leadership at the bridge, it's got to be to the pleasure of the Lord before the pleasure of the people. Joshua understood that. And he had an absolute certainty in the Lord, which perhaps this above all other reasons is why, number four, Joshua was a man who was commissioned by the Lord. Commissioned by the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9, it tells us Joshua the son of Nun was filled, I love this, filled with the spirit of wisdom. (laughs) Joshua was a spirit-filled leader. Filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And that's so important to recognize. Joshua was spirit-filled. That was not a typical thing in the day. You see, as Christians, we have the blessing. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. You give your life to Christ, and the Holy Spirit fills you, indwells you. And even beyond this, and this is another message for another time, the Holy Spirit also can come upon you if you so desire that in your life. Wants to come upon you in powerful ways. That's natural for Christians. That's a promise to us. But to the Israelites, it wasn't. God gave His Spirit and took His Spirit. You'll see later with with King Saul. God gave Saul His Spirit when he became king, but later on He took His Spirit away. David had the Spirit of God on him. We see Joshua has the Spirit. God chose specific people who would be filled with His Holy Spirit. And it wasn't every Israelite. You weren't just filled with the Holy Spirit because you happened to be of Israel. Praise God that because you're in Christ... You have opportunity to be filled with the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, and also to have the power of the Spirit on your life. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But Joshua was commissioned. Commissioned by the Lord. And when you know that you know that God Himself has commissioned you, then certainty, conviction, and courage are absolutely sure to come. Because you know who called you to what you're doing. You understand that. I love watching it happen in people's lives. I'm going to pick on Aaron just for a second here. But I love watching calling impact people's lives. As far as recently as what? Was it just a year ago? A little over a year ago now. Maybe a year and a half. Aaron had no idea that he had any calling to youth ministry whatsoever. In fact, he wouldn't have said he had any calling to it. Until he went to creation with our kids... You know, he was one of these guys that, you know, he raised his hand to ask where the, where the restrooms were, and next thing he knew, he was in charge of the youth ministry. You know, and I, oh, I'm doing that now. And yet, there's a calling that's on his life. And, and it's such a pleasure for me to watch that calling. When you know you've been called by the Lord, 
You have certainty in the Lord. You have courage by the Lord. You have conviction before the Lord. And these are the characteristics of Joshua. This great leader who's going to take the people into the land. These are also the characteristics again of a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and in love with the Word of God. Romans 15.4 tells us whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And Joshua knew this. He understood this. And you will find this courageous, convicted, certain, and commissioned man spending the bulk of his days in the Word. You would think Joshua, as a military leader, would be spending his days mapping out battle plans and figuring out strategies and how to fight and how to go against. But Joshua spent his time in the Word of God. What do you mean in the Word of God? Well, you're going to find out in a few minutes that Joshua had... The first form of the Bible in hand to study. How do you know this, Rick? Because the Bible tells me so. And we'll get there as well. Let's go ahead and start. The book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about, you might want to circle this, that word now is really the word and. And there's an assumption there, and I think it's probably accurate, that at least chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, and possibly going back as far as chapter oh, chapter 32, Joshua was writing already. The last chapter or so of Deuteronomy. And we get on into chapter 1 of the book of Joshua. It starts off with the word and, because he's just continuing on with the narrative. We've busted into what we think to be a new book. This is just the continuing story, his story, God's story, to the people. And it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Now as we've talked about, Moses, Moses was a type or a picture of the law. We talk a lot about pictures in our study of the Old Testament. Because, as I prayed earlier, the Old Testament is a picture book. The New Testament principles we see in picture form in the Old Testament. Every principle that is applied to our spiritual lives, we can go back to the Old Testament and see an example of. And understand from the Old Testament what is being taught in the New Testament. It's fantastic how it works that way. And Moses is one of these pictures. A type or picture of the law. And the law cannot lead the people into the promised land. The law can't lead you and I into the promise of God. By keeping the law, by our own righteousness, we cannot, we cannot gain access or entry into God's promises. Only Joshua will lead the people in. Only Yeshua, our Joshua, Jesus, can lead us in. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Some of you might say, Rick, you quote that verse an awful lot. I know, isn't it great? It's a great verse. That should be plastered on the front of our minds. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, not through the law, but through the Lord Jesus. As you'll see on Sunday, and this will be exciting, the entire book of Joshua is a canvas portrait of Jesus, of our Joshua. And particularly, it's a picture of the book of Revelation. And we're going to go through chapter 1 through 24 on Sunday. It's going to be amazing. And look at the prophetic of the book of Joshua before we even get on further into the book. But it's interesting to note something else about Joshua. His name 
was originally Oshia. Not Joshua, but Oshea or o- Oshia. And we saw this back in the listing of the twelve men who were sent out to spy out the land. It says Numbers chapter 13, verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea or Oshea, the son of Nun. It tells us in Numbers 13, verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. Oshea was one of them, but it says, but Moses called Oshea the son of Nun, Joshua. He changed his name. Name changes are highly significant in the Bible. You probably know that. Always pay attention to, stop and consider why a name is changed because it's for a very specific reason. Moses changes Oshia's name to Joshua. Now, Oshia is a good name. It's a great name. It means salvation. And his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Nunn, when they were living back in Egypt, when they named their firstborn son, Oshia, I know it was for a reason. What better name for a people in captivity but to name their firstborn salvation. That's what the people wanted. It's what they longed for. It's what they desired. Every Jew in Goshen wanted salvation from the slavery that they were bound to. But what's amazing is the parents of Oshia couldn't have possibly known that the name that they had given their firstborn was incredibly significant. Because in fact, their firstborn son would be literally saved as the blood of the lamb was applied to the top of the door and the doorposts. He would have salvation. Joshua was a firstborn. And if not for the blood of the lamb applied to the doorposts, Joshua's story would have been over before he ever left Egypt. Oshia, salvation. It's a good name for him. But Yehoshua, Yahshua, Joshua is better. Because Joshua means, and this is where Moses comes in, he changed the name from salvation to Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Why would Moses change it? It's a simple change, salvation to Jehovah is salvation. But he does so because, don't forget this, Moses was a prophet. And this prophet, and the prophets didn't always understand what they were saying. They didn't always understand the significance. They just did what they needed to do. And when he changed Oshia's name to Joshua, what he did was set up for us a picture of our Joshua, Jesus Christ. Without even possibly realizing it. And maybe Moses did know that Joshua was going to be a picture of Messiah. But as a prophet, Joshua then is a type of Jesus Christ both the man and the book, as we will see. Verse 3 going on. The Lord says to Joshua here, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. We're very familiar with the river Euphrates today. All the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. And my friends, verse 3 I believe is the key verse of the whole book. The book is about possession. If you're going to take one word and say this is what Joshua is about, it's about possession. Taking possession of the land. And verse 3 tells us, I have given it to you. Notice by the way the difference in language from verse 2 to verse 3. In verse 2, God says, I am giving it to them. I am giving it to them. I'm in the process of giving it to them. But suddenly in the very next verse, he says, I have given it to you. It's a done deal. It's promised. It's taken care of. It's already yours. 
You haven't crossed the Jordan, but it's yours already. I have given it to you. Take possession of it now. Take possession of what belongs to you. It's like Christmas presents on Christmas morning. Man, those presents, when they're under the tree, my children know they already belong to my kids. They know it because they can look at the present and there's a little tag on it that has Corey or Hannah or Hayden's name on it. And that little present, it belongs to Corey. He hasn't taken possession of it yet. It sits there under the tree, maybe for a few days before Christmas, and every day he'll go and look at it and wonder. It's his, but he hasn't possessed it yet. The land belongs to Israel. It's theirs. And now God's saying, I've given it to you. It's yours. Take it. Take possession of it. He says, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, in other words, whatever you put your soul into, is yours. Whatever your soul touches is yours. I've given it to you. Now, physically speaking, these verses once again express the divine geographic gifting and the scope of the land that was promised to Israel. If you look at it on a map today, it includes Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, even parts of Iraq, all the way to the Euphrates River. That is all Israel territory as far as the gifting of the Lord is concerned. But something amazing happened with Israel. They only opened one out of ten of their presents. They opened one-tenth of their gifts that God, as it were, put under the tree for that special morning. One-tenth. I can't even imagine my kids opening up 10% of their gifts and saying, we're done, we're good, thanks, I don't really need any more. I mean, it seems so counterindicated by the nature of man. But gang, God's desire for us is to take possession of all of His blessings, not just some of it. And yet Israel only took one-tenth of the land intended for them. I've shared this many times before. 30,000 square miles at the height of Solomon's kingdom was the size of Israel. 30,000 square miles. But if you track the description given by God in the scriptures, it's 300,000 square miles that was gifted to them. But they only took 10%. And the question is, how much do you want? How much do you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, want of the Lord? How far are you willing to go? How far out are you going to step? The sole of your foot, where are you going to tread? Are you going to continue going further and further? The Lord would say, I will give it to you as far as you're willing to go. As much as you want to take, I'll give it to you. I'll take you as far as you want to go, and I won't take you one step further. Isn't that amazing? The Lord gives to us the choice of how much we're to be filled by Him. Of how much our lives are to be His. And and we can take a little bit. And you know, God's okay with that. What's amazing about our Father and His graciousness is He gives us salvation. And there are many Christians who receive salvation and that's good enough for them. And their lives have very little change. And very little experience of the Lord, you know, the occasional Sunday, the occasional Bible study, the occasional worship setting, fellowshipping with some other Christians, and that's okay, and it's good, but they will never experience more. Maybe you've been in that place in your life where you read about the fantastic experiences of other Christians. Missionaries who who do things, and you read and just go, oh, man, that's just awesome. Something like that could never happen to me. And the Lord says back and says, yeah, I can if you want it to, I will give you as much as you want to take. But I will not give you any more than you're willing to receive. 
any more than you want. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, listen, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is huge. We already have every spiritual blessing. It's there. It's under the tree. Are you going to open it? Are you going to take it? It's up to you. It's up to me to take as much as we want to take. To receive as much from the Lord as we would like to receive. The blessings are there, but have we taken possession of them? Ephesians 3.20, another mind-blowing verse. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Take possession of what God has for you. I, I just encourage you. Sometimes we fear sticking our necks out. Or we fear taking that step off the cliff for fear that God's not going to catch us. But it's when you take the step off the cliff that you start to fly. It's when you stick your neck out that you start to see and understand things that you never saw or understood before. And it's only our faithlessness that keeps us from possessing all that God has for us. And He has so much. He has so much more. And I'll put it this way, he has much more than any of us in this barn tonight have ever experienced. There's still more to be possessed. And he wants you to take it. His hand is open. Verse 5. The people are told to possess the land. And now God begins to encourage Joshua himself. And he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. That's amazing. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. I can see Joshua listening to this and just overwhelmed because I believe this is exactly what he wanted. This is the Joshua who stayed at the tent of meeting after Moses left. This is the Joshua who sat there wanting to see the Lord, wanting to experience the Lord, not wanting to miss a single thing. Every time the barn door was open, Joshua was there. This is that same man, and now the Lord is fulfilling that hope, that desire of Joshua's heart. I will be with you in the same way I've been with Moses. And I will not fail you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. And be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. By the way, he's telling Joshua, observe all the law. Our Joshua did. Jesus observed all the law. He didn't miss a single thing. He says, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. And this book of the law is a great verse to have underlined and highlighted and circled and and starred and everything. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, and don't forget when the Lord calls you to possess something, He is with you all the way to the completion of that possession. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So when you step out, you're never stepping out alone. When you reach out to take possession of what God has called you to, invited you to, 
or gifted to you. He's right there with you. I will not fail you or forsake you, he says to Joshua. And I was thinking about this, the source of Joshua's strength and courage. This courageous man, where does it all come from? A couple of keys to his courage, to Joshua's style living in the Lord. You can jot these down if you'd like to. And the first is the presence of the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit. The Lord says to Joshua, I will not fail you or forsake you. I am with you wherever you go. Joshua was a Spirit-filled man, as I said before. Now consider this a little bit further. Joshua was Spirit-filled. So was Jesus. Now, that may seem obvious to you. And maybe you, like me, as I was growing up, I always thought Jesus had the power to do what he did because he was Jesus. You know, the miracles, the healings, the raising from the dead, the walking on the water, man, that was all God stuff. Because he was God in the flesh. Because he was Jesus. But you know, we understand and we see from Scripture that Jesus himself was Spirit-filled. Do you remember when it happened? Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 tells us after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. Jesus received at that moment the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me because I'm not saying that Jesus was not God before that. Now, there are some, you know... Higher critics, I don't know how they got higher, probably smoking their pipes, but the higher critics who think that Jesus didn't become really God until this moment, that he was just fully human for a while, and then the Godness kind of was poured into him. No, he was always God. He knew it when he was 12 years old. Okay, I believe he knew it his whole life. But in the moment of his baptism, when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. And I do believe in that moment he was empowered for ministry. You see, the power of Jesus Christ to walk on the water and calm the storms and heal people and raise the dead was not because he was God. Let me explain. Paul tells us something that's pretty radical. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The word emptied in that verse is the Greek word kanuo. Listen to this. It means neutralized. Jesus neutralized his power. He neutralized his glory. When Jesus was born of Mary in that stable When he came into the world, he came in, though he was in nature, fully God and fully man, he came in with his power neutralized, emptied himself. And so the reason why Jesus walked on the water was not because he was God, it was because he was filled with the Spirit. The reason why Jesus was able to heal was not because he was God. Oh, he could have. Don't get me wrong. He could have just been completely God. And you're going to see Jesus in in chapter 5 of Joshua show up and be God in, in human form, which is another amazing story we'll get to. But Jesus did the things he did and had the power he did because he was spirit filled. Why? Why is that the case? Why, why would God do that? Because God was showing us in Jesus not only a picture of himself, but a picture of how we could be if we followed him. 
The perfect man, the perfect example. Why was Jesus baptized? Does that make any sense to anybody? He didn't need to be baptized. He was already righteous. Yeah, but he wanted us to be. So he did it. Why did the Spirit light upon him, fall upon him after his baptism? Because he wanted the same for you and for me. And he was showing us by example what could happen. Let me give you Jesus' words on this. And this is one of the most powerful scriptures and overlooked scriptures possibly in the entire Bible. John 14, 12. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. In fact, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. You see me walk on water? If you're filled with the Spirit, then don't go right out and try it on the pond because I'm not fishing you out. You see me healing people? It's going to happen. Peter, Peter was so filled with the Spirit, bungling Peter, even the same Peter who still had trouble after he was Spirit-filled, that Peter was so empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that literally his shadow healed people. We never read about Jesus' shadow healing someone. Now we do read about Jesus saying, go and, and it'll be as you, as you said, that a centurion and the centurion's servant was healed immediately and Jesus never was even in the same room. But there is a great power in the filling of the Holy Spirit that we are promised that we can receive. Do you want it? Do you want the Spirit in your life? Then ask for it. Ask the Lord for that filling. Ask the Lord for His Spirit to be upon you. Not only dwelling in you, but to be upon you. It's interesting when you think about, and I have have done a lot of recent study into this and prayed a lot about it because it's not, as many of you know, the tradition that I was raised with. But I do believe that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you're baptized. At that moment, you've accepted Jesus, and you go into literally the waters of baptism, you're immersed, and you come out of it, and, and, and Peter tells us, Acts 2.38, very clearly, repent and be baptized, and you will be saved, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you're baptized, and every person who gives their life to Jesus receives the indwelling of His Spirit and the seal of salvation. It's a done deal, instantly. But I believe there is a second filling. I believe there is a falling upon of the Holy Spirit and empowering what Acts chapter 1 calls the dunamis in the Greek the empowering of the Holy Spirit that is in addition to salvation and a lot of us Christians remain with the indwelling of the Spirit but we have never been empowered by the Spirit and it's interesting because Moses says or or, or Paul says referring back to Moses in 1 Corinthians 10 he says they were baptized in the Red Sea the Red Sea would be the first baptism but what happened when they went into the land they had to cross through the Jordan as well where was it that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan there are two seas two two bodies of water literally that the people of Israel had to pass through and the first one Paul compares to baptism. The second one, I think you can draw a parallel, a comparison to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Joshua was a spirit-filled man, and his courage, his courage came from the presence of the Spirit in his life. The second thing that gave Joshua that great courage to fight and to lead the people was number two, the prosperity of the word. 
The prosperity of the word. Look at verse 8 again. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to what is written in it. Two words you need to focus on in this passage. Written. What is written in it. There are those who try to say that the Bible was written much later or or that that basically the Jews by oral tradition came all the way down the line and it was just orally passed on and of course there must be all kinds of flaws in the Old Testament scriptures because it was just passed along orally. Not so. Before Moses left the earth, the first copy, the earliest copy of the Bible was already written and it was the Torah and Joshua had it. And right here, Joshua is being told by the Lord, sit down and read and meditate on what was written down. You get out the copies of the law and you read it and you study it and you meditate on it. It was written for you. In the 14th century before Christ, we have the first third of the Hebrew Bible in written form, a book that Joshua was able to meditate on and study. And the other word that I want you to notice here, not not only written, but is meditate. What does that mean to meditate on the word? The word in the Hebrew is Hagah, H-A-G-A-H, if you're writing that down for a little transliteration there. It means mutter, or literally speak. Mutter the word. Speak the word. And what it's talking about there, meditation on the word, is speaking it aloud. It's saying the word out. Now, if you're one of those people who, like me, if you're, especially if you're just a little bit tired and you're reading a passage of Scripture, and all of a sudden you realize, boy, I'm way over here on this side of the page, and I'm not even sure what I just read. I've got to go back and read it again. I used to do that in school all the time, especially with like history books and you know sociology. You'd read four chapters and go, I don't even know what I studied. It's all gone. It's not getting in. You know. God says to Joshua, Hey, don't, don't. Assume that it's just going to get in by reading it. You meditate on it. You mutter the scriptures. You speak the words. It's not, it's not meditate as in silently musing. Reading a passage and closing your eyes and going, Home, you know? That's not the meditation of the Bible. It's not a, a, just a quiet contemplation where your mind wanders. And my mind wanders easily. There are even times I'm teaching where my mind wanders off and I have to grab it and bring it back so that we know where we're at. You'll know it's those times where I go, where were we? We're somewhere in here. But the Lord says to Joshua, I want you to speak the word. Read it. Read it aloud. You want a key to being into the word and staying with it? Read it out loud. Now, I've gotten, I've gotten very comfortable with this. My, my wife and children know it all the time. They'll walk by my office and they hear me talking in there. And, and I'm reading the word aloud. It's part of how I study. With every chapter, by the way, that we will come to, week in and week out, and I just just did it yesterday, I'll read the whole chapter out loud. I'll stand there in my study with my Bible, and I'll, I'll start out. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. And the only person in my office is my dog, Reggie, and he doesn't need me to speak it to him. But by speaking it aloud, it's meditation. It's meditation. And you can do it with a passage. You can do it with a single verse. Pick out a verse that is powerful to you. I'll share one with you. Back in the blessings of Moses, the verse, the blessing for Benjamin is, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him, who shields him all the day, and he dwells between his shoulders. And I was talking to Barb Gilmore on Sunday morning, and she was talking about a time in her life where she had a real tightness in her shoulders, right between her shoulders. And the Lord showed her this verse. And she began to meditate on it. She began to pray it. 
Lord, I want you to dwell between my shoulders. I want you to take authority right here in this part of my body. I want you to be here. And speaking the verse, speaking it aloud to the Lord, it's, it's praying the scriptures is what it is. That's meditation. And that's what I believe the Lord is saying to Joshua. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua, I want you to sit in the tent day and night. And this is why I said earlier that Joshua spent the bulk of his time in the Word of God, not in battle plans. Because if you're in the Word of God, He'll take care of the battle plans. He'll deal with the strategies. He's already got the shields up. He already has the plan in place. What you and I need to do is stay in the Word, which is exactly what we're doing tonight. In the Psalms, Psalm 19.14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Same thing. The meditation is coming out. It's the muttering of the Scriptures. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which you cannot do silently, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There is a power to this kind of prosperity in the word. By the way, let me clarify something. I'm calling this the prosperity of the word. I'm not personally into the whole word faith movement. Not into the idea of the name it, claim it, and, and, and the indication that some say, man, if you, just, if you just claim it, it can be your, you can be rich. You should be rich. You should be wealthy. You should be prosperous if you're in the Lord. Not so. Not so. You may give your life fully to Jesus and be impoverished the rest of your life. Praise the Lord. That's what he had planned for you. He's going to give you what you need and, and how you need it. And some of the most, the most serving people in the world, people you'll see in the mission field, give up everything and literally live day in, day out without a single thing. Well, they just don't have enough faith? Well, the reality is the prosperity of the Word of God is a prosperity that is so far beyond the physical stuff. Materialism. That's not the prosperity of the Word. The prosperity of the Word is how it changes and enriches our lives in amazing ways. That's real prosperity, and that's the kind that God has designed us to enjoy. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, David charges Solomon regarding the word. He says, Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses. So David's telling Solomon, You go back, and you read through the Torah, and you meditate on it over and over. He says, Do so that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn and familiar to many of you is Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night he meditates he mutters he speaks He's saying the word aloud. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Water, streams of water in the Bible, a picture of the Holy Spirit. You want more of the Holy Spirit in your life? Spend more time in the word. It's almost as though God's spirit gravitates to the speaking of his word. He loves his word so much. He elevates his word so highly that when you speak the word, you're like a tree planted by streams of water. And the living, the living water of the Holy Spirit flowing through us as we're speaking the word. There's a, a powerful connection between the word and the spirit. And those streams of water yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, this person prospers. 
So the prosperity, the prosperity of the Word, the presence of the Spirit. And number three, the third ingredient, which is key to the function of the other two ingredients in a person's life. Key to having a Joshua-style faith. It's the posture of a servant. The posture of a servant. I can't even express how critical this attitude is in the serving of the Lord. In following and in growing in your faith. The posture of a servant. The the whole book starts off that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of, of Nun, Moses' servant. The first thing Joshua says about himself in the book is he was a servant. I'm just Moses' servant. I'm his guy. I was his right arm man. I just did. I was there to do whatever he needed me to do. He fought the battle when Moses said to Joshua, "Fight." He sat at the tent of meeting when Moses said, "Hey, we're going out to the tent." He would run errands for Moses, doing anything needed. He was a servant, and the posture of a servant gang is something that has been missed, or at least misunderstood. In many Christian circles, especially related to the Spirit-filled life. Because the purpose of a Spirit-filled life, the purpose of a Spirit-filled life, the purpose of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and coming upon us is not so that we can get a buzz. It's not so that we can sit with a group of people and experience some fantastic supernatural thing. That is not the... Now, does that happen? Yeah, it does. Is that why we're given the Spirit? Is that why we're to look for more than just the indwelling, but for the outpouring of the Spirit, so that we can get excited, drunk on the Spirit? Gang, God is not a bartender, a spiritual bartender, doling out drinks to get people stoned on the Spirit. That is not why the Spirit is given, and the Bible is clear about that. Joshua was called Moses' servant. Jesus took on the form of a bond servant. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. That's why you need the power. He doesn't say you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you so that you can do strange things. He says, you're going to receive the power of my Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses. And the word witnesses is Marteo, so that you can be my martyrs, so that you will be empowered in your life to go all the way even to death in serving me. The pathway of someone following the Lord, truly following the Lord, is not one to personal greatness. It is a downward spiral that results, that leads us ultimately to the foot of the cross of Jesus. It is a move downward. We talked about this recently, that there are different words for servant in the New Testament. We talked a lot and have been looking at diakonos, servants, deacons, for an actual role at the bridge. But gang, beyond diakonos is another word for servant, which is doulos, which means bond servant, and it's the lowest of the lowest of the low, and that's the servant that Jesus has called us to strive to become. And that's why He gives His Holy Spirit. That's why we're filled with spiritual gifts. That is the unfortunate ignorance about the Holy Spirit today. His power is for service. His power is so that we can serve Him more fully and that we, we can we go, go lower and lower. We're climbing down the ladder while everyone else is trying to climb up. So that we can bear up other people. So that we can love other people. So that we can be concerned for others over ourselves the posture of a servant 
And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ that great fullness of Jesus Christ is met, is discovered, is grown as we head down as we seek the posture of a servant. These things we see in the example of Joshua. The presence of the Spirit, the prosperity of the Word, the posture of a servant. Joshua was Spirit-filled. He was that servant who led the people across the Jordan River, same river that Jesus was baptized in. It's one of the fascinating things to me about being in Israel is seeing the connection of these places. You know, we, we read the Old Testament over here and the New Testament over here and we separate it all out. But it all happened in the same little country, the same mountains, the same location. Jesus from his home in Nazareth could look literally across the fields and across the valley and he could see Mount Carmel where Elijah took on the 400 prophets of Baal. It was right there. And that Jordan River that the children of Israel crossed was the same Jordan Jesus was baptized in that John the Baptist preached by. That Sea of Galilee that Jesus walked on, it was there in Moses' day. Moses saw it. He didn't actually come to it. But the Israelites were there. It's all the same place. And that river, that Jordan River, is is significant. And I do believe is a picture of the filling of the Spirit for the purpose of service. Are you beginning to see now why Moses prophetically renamed Oshia Joshua? Because another Joshua would be coming. And when Jesus was named as a boy, his name wasn't Jesus, it wasn't Jesus, it was Joshua. That's what he was called. And Joshua is a picture of that. Well, let's finish this up real quickly. Verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. And I have this underlined for within three days you are to cross this Jordan. To go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Get ready. Get ready, Joshua says. In three days we're crossing the Jordan. In three days we're going into the land. In three days the promise will be ours. The possession will be ours. And Jesus spoke in similar terms. Matthew 12, verse 40, he said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Get ready, guys, Jesus would say to his disciples, because in three days I'm rising again. And by the way, he was that clear. Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Could Jesus have been any more clear? And yet when he was crucified, what did the apostles do? They went into mourning and fear. They hid out. They locked themselves away thinking, we're next. And they completely forgot the teaching of Jesus that was not metaphorical. It was literal. I'm going to rise in three days. Get ready. Joshua says three days and you're going to cross the Jordan. Jesus says three days and there's going to be a new life. John chapter 2 verse 18, the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us is your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And the Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? 
But John tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus gave his disciples ample preparation for his crucifixion and his resurrection. He told them ahead of time, three days, get ready, get ready, get ready. But they didn't hear him. They missed it. They didn't get it. And I tell you that because I wonder, and this is my question, when Jesus says the following, Matthew 24, 42, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert, the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. My question to you is, will you be ready? Joshua is telling the people, prepare provisions. Three days from now, we're going into a new world. Jesus told his disciples, get ready. Three days from my crucifixion, I'm rising and we will enter into a new life. And now he would say to you and I the same thing. Are you ready? Are you ready? Get ready. Verse 12, to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, that is, on the side they were right now on, east side of the Jordan, because the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay there. They didn't want land in the promised section. They wanted to stay on the right side. Okay, the wrong side for them, as you'll find out later in their history. But Joshua said, You shall cross before your brothers in battle array, all your valiant warriors, and help them. And the Lord, until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving to them, then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And you remember this story when it happened. The Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay on this side of the Jordan. They didn't want to go further. And Moses said, all right, I'll make a deal with you. You can settle here. Your people can be here. But you're going to go fight. And you're going to win those battles until your brothers have their rest. And when they have their land, then you can go back. And I was thinking about this today. I'm thinking, how sad is it that there are times when fellow Christians will go to war and go to battle for each other. But when the battle's over, they will shrink back to the old way of living. They'll go back. I've seen this happen where people will engage in spiritual life and spiritual warfare and they'll get on the front lines of service in a church fellowship or a body and they will be involved and they'll be working for the Lord and serving because you know I'm doing this for the family we have a campaign going and we're all jumping in to help the campaign and to make it fly and then at the end of the campaign they slip right back across the Jordan to their land on the other side and the Lord's saying How much do you want to possess? I'll give it to you if you want it. I'll give you more than you've got if you want it. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. If you're going to fight the good fight, may I encourage you tonight not to shrink back east side to the east side of the blessings. Don't settle for the past. Don't settle for where you've been. Don't engage in battles for your fellow brothers and sisters, only then to slide back to where you were before. If you're going to fight, take the land and continue forward. Don't be people who go back. Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill has a, has a saying that I just love. He says, as Christians, we're called to live today in light of yesterday for the sake of tomorrow. That's good stuff. Live today in light of... You learn from yesterday. Just don't live there. Learn from it. Live today with your eyes set on the future for the sake of tomorrow. Verse 16, they answered Joshua saying, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things. <laughs> did they obey Moses in all things? So Joshua must be hearing this going, Oh great, you're going to treat me the same way you did him? Wonderful, thanks a lot. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. I like that. Don't follow a leader who isn't with the Lord, who the Lord isn't with. Now I would, I would say to you, and, and I would say it, hopefully it doesn't sound arrogant, but I would say as, as a pastor in this church, I would hope that you would follow some of the lead. I, I feel some of the responsibility, feel a great deal of the responsibility for this fellowship. And I would hope that you would follow that lead. But I would only hope you would follow any leading of my own if I'm following the leading of Christ. And if I'm not following the leading of Christ, don't follow my lead. Because it's not going to be any good. There are all kinds of directions I can go, but I get myself stuck in and I'd really rather you not follow that direction. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow your elders as they follow Christ. Follow along with other believers as they follow Christ. Just as we obeyed Moses, we'll obey you. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And the people wanted to see that. They wanted to see God with Joshua. And they would. And verse 18, they say, Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only, be strong and courageous. (laughs) This tells me something about the people of Israel. We want to follow you, Joshua. We want, to, we want to follow your lead. But we need you to be strong. We need you to be courageous. We need you to step out, to go before us. We need you. We're with you. But be strong and courageous. And as the opening verses of this great book indicate, Joshua, having spent 40 years in training and service with Moses, takes command. He accepts and moves out in his authority. He is strong and courageous. And then our Joshua is strong and courageous too. Our Joshua said, Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have the command. Now go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Our Joshua is strong, is courageous. He is with us. Indeed, he goes before us. Just as he, our Joshua, went before this Joshua into the battle of Jericho, which we're going to see in a few weeks. Let's pray. Father, I'm so excited. I'm just jazzed to get into this book. 
and to, to learn from the conquests of the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua because that's where we are. We are a people who are being called to take possession of all the spiritual blessings that you've given us. And not for ourselves alone, Father, to take possession by the power of your Spirit that people who are lost would be saved and would be found. We are called, Lord, I believe and understand by the great commission of Jesus Christ, we are called to save the lost. We are called to take possession of those who don't yet know Jesus and to bring them to you. We are called under the authority and the leadership of you, Lord Jesus. And we, though feeble in many ways like Israel, thank you that we have something they did not have. We do have the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. And we do have the promise of the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, which is an even greater power. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit on us, on this people, on those gathered here tonight. I pray we'll receive that outpouring gift so that we will be strong and that we will be courageous as we seek to do your will in this world to take possession of the land and to show Jesus Christ, our Joshua, to everyone who needs to know him today. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for this book. And guide us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.